Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Uh, okay, some good news and some bad news. Uh, the good news is that uh, my Patreon supporters have, there are 161 of you, <laughs> which is amazing, and uh, that is really, really great, and we have topped $1,000 a month uh, as of the last, uh, this last week, and that is really great because that uh, introduces the next level of um, reward for my Patreon supporters, which is that I will start doing Patreon-only uh, Google Hangouts. I'll set that up within Patreon, and I'll let my Patreon supporters know when that's going to get going. Uh, but I think that might be kind of fun uh, for you guys, and, uh, and so we'll be doing that. So thank you very much, everybody who is on board on my channel and is supporting my work here. I, again, uh, cannot tell you how much I appreciate that. Now, on the <laughs> other end of that, uh, I found out in going through my uh, video manager this morning on YouTube that for some reason YouTube has decided to demonetize about 10 of my videos without letting me know. These are older videos. Uh, I mean, some of them over a year old, and they just go through and just arbitrarily, nope, this one's not, not uh, advertiser friendly, and this one's not, and this one's not. Some of them are of some of my most popular videos, and other ones are ones that are, are hardly looked at. Some of them have to do with critical thinking. Uh, one of them was the conspiracy, you know, why conspiracy theories are, are stupid. That video got demonetized. There's really not a lot of rhyme and reason to it, except it seems to be that if there's anything having to do with atheism in the title or something like that, or it goes into that area at all, then it seems like it's being demonetized. Apparently that's very controversial for YouTube, or at least for its algorithm. On uh, many of the videos, um, you can submit for a manual review to ask, you know, a human being to look at it. And almost all the time when I get that done and they do bother to look at my videos, they decide that it is okay for advertisers and they, and they re-up it for uh, advertiser friendly. But um, some have not passed the test and I, it's not clear in YouTube's instructions and guidelines what I'm, my videos are being flagged for. Uh, it is YouTube doing it. It's not Scientology or anybody else. It's, it's just Google slash YouTube. And I'm not happy about it. I, there's nothing I can really do to fight back against it. It just sort of is what it is. I want to be clear about the fact that I'm happy to be able to upload videos in the first place. You know, we've talked about this a little bit before. Where I've commented on it on, on some of my shows here. And I am happy to have a platform. I'm happy that a bunch of you guys are deciding to support my work and support what I'm doing here so I can keep doing this. But it really is a bit of a backstab when YouTube is demonetizing videos that I've put up uh, that I thought were all good and have been fine. And then suddenly, arbitrarily, out of nowhere, they're not fine. And there's no email to me. There's no reason given. And there's nothing I can do about it. And that's a little frustrating. So I'll just vent a little to you guys about that um, because you're involved in my channel and some of you guys are, are helping to support this channel and I just want you to know that your uh, efforts uh, in that are, are definitely and truly appreciated and I hope that more of you will, um, you know, consider doing the same. All right, that all being said, let's go ahead and get on with answering your questions for this week. We've got some good ones. Jeff Beaumont. 
Since leaving Scientology, I have found it incredibly therapeutic to be out in nature. I often find that just going for a walk in the woods truly allows me to clear my mind and calms me. I always think to myself that it is similar to what I would do if interbulated while in Scientology, i.e. the locational assist, take a walk, etc. I will often go into the woods and just find a comfortable spot to sit and just experience nature, touching it and listening to the sounds. It is almost meditative. My question would be, as an atheist, or however you prefer to identify, do you feel there is a spiritual aspect to nature? Have you explored or considered exploring this as a method of therapy? I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Thanks for the question, Jeff. It's, it's actually a good one. Um, I am a city boy. <laughs> I've always been inclined to, you know, city life and, and being in a city and having civilization around me and that sort of thing. I did, uh, I was in the Boy Scouts when I was young and I did go out and do camping and I didn't really get into it a whole lot. I wasn't as into it as my dad or other kids that I knew, but you know, it was, it was okay. Um, but I do love going out and taking walks and I do, I live here in Denver, Colorado. I am, you know, minutes away from the, the Rocky Mountains and we go up there and, and walk around up in the woods or up in the mountains all the time and of course take walks here. There's a ton of parks here in, in Denver. I think that the quiet and the sort of serene uh, environment you can get in a, in a real woodland, you know, uh, sylvan setting is great, very calming, very peaceful, very chilling, you know, just kind of relax. Um, I guess you could call that spiritual. I, you know, I don't, I, I would, <laughs> you know, I might use that word to describe, you know, the sort of calm, serene experience you can have uh, doing that. Uh, sort of feeling, you know, in touch with, with uh, other living things around you. You know, you hear the birds and you hear little squirrels and rabbits and, and things like that or, or bigger animals. Um, and I think that's, you know, I think that is a, a nice break from, you know, the, the grind of city life or the day-to-day, the -day, you know, hustle and bustle of our lives and the, the amount of thinking that we do and the introversion that occurs and the, the uncomfortableness of having to maybe interact with other people when you're not necessarily feeling like you want to or you're not feeling very social that day or having the, the you know, the grind of going to work and, uh, and you know, so it's nice to get a break from that. I think it can be therapeutic to that degree. I think vacations and, and getaways are very, very necessary for our mental health. And, uh, and I think that, you know, if you want to do a Henry David throw and go out on, on Walden Pond for a while and chill, I think there's nothing wrong with that at all. And I, and I do think that for many, many people, it would have therapeutic value. I don't know about codifying how much value it would have. I have no idea. You know, I don't know any studies or anything that have been done on it. I didn't look up anything like that. But I know from my own experience that I definitely get a lot out of, uh, of getting away. Uh, even if it's just, like I said, to a city park. It doesn't even have to be, you know, way out in the woods or go out into the, you know, Grand Tetons or something or, you know, go visit Sequoia. Although I have done that and those are, those are, that's, it's nice up there. So, um, so yeah, I do agree that there is a therapeutic value to that. As far as Scientology in this goes, I'll comment on that. 
Um, there are assists and locationals, such as, uh, and a locational is where a person is taken around by another Scientologist and they're pointed, things, are, they're, things are in the environment are pointed out to them. Look at that wall, look at that floor, look at that light, look at the ceiling, you know, that person's attention is directed around to various things. And that can be very helpful if you're introverted and upset about something, or if you're just feeling a little, you know, uh, it can be great to have somebody walk around and, and you kind of get your attention out and kind of extrovert. And that can be really good for some people. Some people, not so much. So I guess it depends on the person and the circumstances. I loved taking walks and doing locationals and things like that when I was in Scientology. I never had a problem with any of those things. In fact, because I worked for, you know, eight years when I first joined the Sea Org, I was working in a basement. I mean, there were no windows, there was nothing. So getting out, even to just have a quick cigarette or, or you know, uh, walk across the base just to get a little bit of space and a little bit of sun. I mean, we were literally inside in a basement all day, every day for, you know, weeks and weeks on end. And uh, you wouldn't really have any call, at least I didn't, from the job that I was doing to even, you know, go up to the second floor where they had some windows sometimes, you know, except to go out to eat. Uh, you know, you cross the street to go over the main mess or something. So, uh, so I found it very necessary to get out and about uh, sometimes when I was doing that kind of work. Um, and uh, also, there was one other thing I wanted to tell you guys about on this one because I always thought it was kind of fun. And this was just my own thing. Uh, I'm not recommending this to anybody else. I'm just sharing it as an experience that I had. Um, one of the things, I, and I can't remember if, I, I believe it was, yes, it was from an L. Ron Hubbard lecture uh, from the Route to Infinity series. And uh, this was a 1952, uh, I believe it was an early 1952 series of lectures. Hubbard gave a suggestion about something and how I understood it was to, to, to feel you know, put your hand on a desk or a wall or, you know, something like that. And instead of feeling the wall or the desk with your hand, you would instead feel your hand with the wall, <laughs> if that makes sense. And I always got a laugh out of that. I all, you know, I'd put my hand on it and I'd sort of just sort of reverse in my head how, what I was feeling, I was sort of feeling my hand as though I was, you know, from the wall. It sounds weird, it is weird, but I always got a laugh out of it. And I always kind of felt a little bit, you know, when I, when, if I was having a little bit of trouble or a little bit of, uh, I was a little upset about something, I would just, you know, I might go around and, and look at things, but sometimes I would do this <laughs> and, it, and it worked. So, I don't know. You know, I don't know what to say about that, except I think that uh, I think that a balance of, you know, introversion and extroversion is probably good for most of us. But I think it depends on the person. L.I. My question is about the clear cognition. A person is supposed to reach the clear cognition on their own without being told. As far as I can tell, Scientology isn't too keen on people forming their own ideas or coming to their own conclusions. If the conclusion of clear is that the person realizes they have been mocking up their own reactive mind the whole time, how is one expected to figure this out on their own after maybe years of Dianetic auditing? Is this revolutionary cognition spoon-fed somewhere in Hubbub's writings?
You know, just to check on this before I answered this question, I called Aaron Smith-Levin and he and I spoke about this because we were both supervisors and oversaw auditing in Scientology and I wanted to see if his experiences kind of matched up with mine and they did. And this was kind of interesting. There are more processes in Scientology than just going clear where a specifically worded end result is, is looked for or asked for. There is a kind of auditing called clay table auditing, which is different from the clay demos that they do like in, study, in the study tech where they use clay to demonstrate a principle. Uh, here I am, you know, messing with the clay with my hands. Uh, a clay representation or a series of, of commands that are done in order to get a person to put their thoughts into clay uh, as a kind of therapy in Dianetics or in Scientology, um, there's a few different places in Scientology where that kind of auditing or clay table processing is done. There's the Key to Life course, there's the ProTRs course, and the clay table auditing deals with the subject matter of the course, but it seeks to, you know, give therapy to a person or gives or gives address, you know, past things with the clay. Uh, and they have, again, very specifically worded uh, end results that you're supposed to say. And it is kind of weird, but a, a, a visibly observable thing that most people end up saying something very much like what the end result of these processes are. Some of them are pretty obvious. Um, there were only a couple that were not extremely obvious uh, as to, you know, because like I said, it deals with the subject matter. Uh, in one of the, uh, I, I, I don't know, I don't even want to get into the specifics of it because it might be a little confusing and I have to do a whole song and dance explaining all the background of it. Um, you know, it's just, it's just different. You know, you do these, you do these, these clay representations over and over and over again where you answer, you know, you're asked the same command. Uh, make a clay representation of a problem, for example, right? And you sit there and you do this problem in clay, and then you get asked the question again, you come up with a whole nother problem and you put it in clay, and then a whole nother one and a whole nother one. And, um, and in the case of the Key to Life course, you end up coming up with the idea that, oh, your problems have kind of been coming from, you know, the same source or the same person, and you've sort of adopted their personality as yours. You've been being them. You've been sort of taking on their attributes, and uh, and that's that's a very common. It's it's it is the end result of the process, and you're supposed to keep doing these representations until you get to it. However, with the clear cognition and with the clay table processing, both on the key to life course, the ProTRs course, there is a point where you can get snagged up, and you're never saying it. You're never coming up with the words. And you end up getting what's called a review session or a corrective session to find out what's going on, what's wrong. You've been on this process too long. And the same sort of thing could happen with someone who is at the level of, you know, get, trying to go clear and they're not making it and something's not right and they're getting upset. They're getting, you know, like, this isn't working out, you know, for whatever reason. They don't even know that they're supposed to be saying this clear cognition. They just know that the auditing is going on and on and it's not really getting them where they want to go. So they might get a corrective session, and then that's when they go in with an auditor, and, a, and what's called a correction list is done. And that's a series of questions that are checked on the e-meter to see if, you know, is this what's wrong? Is this what's wrong? Is this what's wrong? Various questions that might get asked. Uh, and one of the questions, like on the clay table auditing, is 
um, did you not need this in the first place? <laughs> was the process unnecessary in the first place? Uh, and, uh, and many, many people, uh, Aaron included on one of them, ended up getting that review session and having that be the, oh, bang, you know, the meter reads, oh, yeah, that's what it is. I, would, I didn't need this in the first place, right? And that's how they get, that's their escape hatch from the process so that they don't have to keep doing it over and over again. So some people will achieve um, these, the end results of these processes without having to say those magic words, whatever those magic words might be. Uh, I delivered hundreds of hours of clay table auditing. I supervised hundreds of hours of clay table auditing uh, in Santa Barbara and in the Sea Org. And so I saw this happen often enough that it's just not even a question for me that, this, that those end results do occur. Uh, eventually, the person will say something like that or, or you asked about leading questions or having it fed to them. We did not feed it to them. However, we would ask leading questions. If, uh, let's say, for example, um, on that clay table auditing I was telling you about, and the same thing would apply for the clear cognition or any of this stuff, so I'm just going to use this as the example. You're doing this process with the problem thing, where the guy's making problems in clay. And then maybe at some point the guy says, while he's making his thing or when he's done, he says, man, this guy Joe was just, man, this guy would give me problems all the time. I, I, uh, man, I really didn't like that guy. And the supervisor might see that, or the auditor might see that and say, oh, what's this about Joe? You want to tell me anything more about Joe? What, what, what else is there about Joe? Did you have any other realizations about this? And try to get the guy talking to see whether it actually occurred to him this end result you're looking for, but he just didn't say it exactly, you know, because a lot, you know, a lot of people you'd find in doing this with, you know, a spectrum of, of different Scientologists that different people would talk in different amounts. I was a very talkative person, surprise. <laughs> Some people very much not communicative. They were just stone walls, you know, they just sit there and do the process and do the process and do the process and they never said anything. And you were solicited routinely, every other uh, clay representation, you would be asked to write a success story or did anything happen or write up any realizations that occurred to you. Uh, and sometimes they just say, yeah, no, nothing or, oh, this was good. And you just have to keep going because they're not saying it. So when they gave you a little string of something that might possibly indicate that they have had the end result, you'd start, you know, asking a lot of questions about that to try to get them to, uh, to tell you what it is you want to hear. So that happens too. And sometimes we'd be pretty insistent on getting like every single thing that happened in their head uh, out, you know, tell me everything so that we could get them done because <laughs> they wouldn't say it otherwise. Masiej Posiecha. How did Scientology ready for the new millennium? You mentioned that you took on supplies because of the Y2K bug, but was there a sense of a quantum change coming with respect to the world and Scientology? Were you expecting to be bringing civilization to a post-apocalyptic wasteland, or a surge of enlightenment to sweep the world and for Scientology to take off? I guess I'm asking if Scientology had a millennial aspect as the date approached. Was there an official policy on Y2K?
I, I'm sorry if I butchered your name again there. I know we have answered at least one question from you before, and I'm just not sure about the pronunciation. But uh, as far as your question goes, I did not, my experience of Scientology at the time, in the 1999 and 2000 was rolling around, was not one of any kind of uh, doomsday clock ticking down or spiritual enlightenment expected, or really we didn't have any, uh, no one I knew expected something to happen just because the clock happened to be rotating around to the year 2000. Time is a rather arbitrary thing, you know, very different calendars, different systems of keeping track of things, and I was aware of that at least in, when I was in Scientology and didn't have any big thing about it any more than I did about the Mayan calendar rolling around. I just never pay attention to any of that stuff. I think it's ridiculous. Um, we did have a very big New Year's event for 2000 when, when, we ent when we came into the year 2000. That was probably one of the, the largest uh, international events that was ever put on. It was at the sports arena, 10,000 people. It wasn't 10,000 people. There was a great big section of seating that didn't have anybody in it, and that was a big problem. But, uh, but there were still thousands of Scientologists gathered in Los Angeles to bring in the new year. That event was a complete disaster, infamously so, and a lot of people got in a lot of trouble because of that after, uh, afterwards. So, um, not the, you know, Scientology doesn't have uh, mystic dates or times or calendars or timetables really as part of it. The way Scientologists are run and communicated to is that we are constantly in a hurry and in a race against time to beat what Hubbard called deadline earth, <laughs> where you know we weren't sure how much time we had. There was always a big question mark, but it wasn't a lot of time. Hubbard talks about in Keeping Scientology Working how there's no infinity of time to get the job done, how we're uh, racing against you know man's aberrations or reactive mind and how it's trying to constantly bring an end to the world and how it can happen at any moment. So we were always on edge as far as uh, those kind of timetables go. And Hubbard also, in some places, made very arcane references to, you know, space civilizations that were keeping an eye on us here and how they might come down sometime. He mentioned in a lecture one time how he was sitting in England, this was in the 60s, and uh, one of his kids came into the room wearing white boots or silver boots or something that the kid had gotten, and Hubbard's first thought was, oh, they're here as in this, the invader forces from, from above had come down and, and uh, this was one of their, you know, these shoes were interpreted by his brain as, as a spacesuit or something before he, oh no, that's my kid, right? Uh, he mentioned that in a lecture one time and, and you know, little, little dropping little bits like that, right, would kind of get you in this frame of mind of what does he know that he's not telling us that maybe, you know, there's something else going on that we need to be in a hurry about. And this was, this was actually something I used to think about when I was a Sea Org member. So that is sort of, it, so, the, so it's not a, a time-specific thing, it's just we're always racing to save Earth from itself uh, and establish a Scientology civilization based on sanity, rationality, and reason. <laughs> That would sort of, you know, do away with war and criminality and insanity and everything would be wonderful because we'd all be Scientologists and we'd all be on the same page. 
That was kind of the idea. DA. What is Scientology's view on animals? Would it be viewed as weird or aberrated if a Scientologist were an animal rights activist? What about a vegan? I noticed that high-level Scientologist Elena Cardone, Grant Cardone's wife, is a vegan or vegetarian. So is Grant's Scientology office manager. I'm guessing it's not because they feel a special compassion for animals. No, it's probably not, although there were plenty of Scientologists I met who were pet owners who loved their animals and who many times, especially cat owners, would talk about how their cat had some thetan in it, uh, you know, a spiritual entity on the order of, of the kind of uh, spiritual entity that inhabits human beings, um, because a thetan can run anybody. You know, a, a dog, a cat, an ant, a tree, whatever. I mean, it's, if it's alive, a thetan could could uh, could operate it or run it or, or be it for the duration of that living thing's life cycle. So, uh, so I met, you know, plenty of Scientologists who thought that their cats or their dogs were, you know, there was, there was somebody there is how they would put it, right? Oh yeah, he's, there's a fate in there, right? Um, I, probably in the same percentages as, as cat lovers or dog lovers in, in the general population. Uh, Hubbard, I think, mentions in a few places, the, the, the kind of backs up that idea. You know, a forest could be run, a whole forest could be run by a Thetan. He definitely mentioned that in a couple places. And, um, and some Scientologists are really into, you know, animals, animal rights. Uh, veganism, vegetarianism would probably in my experience, at least with Scientologists, it would probably be done not because of the cruelty to animals aspect of it, but because of the fad diet aspect of it. Scientologists, and especially in the Sea Org base I was at in, in Big Blue in LA, were their fads were coming and going all the time when it came to health and, and dietary stuff. Uh, the raw food diet, vegan diet, this diet, MSM, uh, MSM, M yeah, this, this, uh, monosodium something or other, uh, supplements, you know, health supplements, vitamins, these kind of things. There'd be crazes that would, that would take over pack base and, uh, and various Sea Org members would really get on a roll about this stuff. And, and some of them really were helped by some of these programs and other ones were disasters. I mean, the, the raw food diet was canceled, was, had to be canceled by edict. Like, no, we're not doing this. This is dangerous, right? That had to, that had to be uh, squelched. Um, but some of these other ones, some of the other supplement diets and, and food diets and stuff would just kind of take hold and then people would, would get into them. And that might be the case with Elena Cardone or she might be doing it because she's taking a stand on, on animal rights. I couldn't really say. Uh, it's not beyond you know, probability that a Scientologist would do that. Scientologists are free to think whatever they want when it comes to that kind of thing. Um, I didn't really run into it too much when I was there. Uh, I was also kind of a junk food junkie, so I was always kind of the guy at the other end of the spectrum. Uh, I was eating, I, I did not have a great diet when I was in um, the Sea Org in Scientology. Um, but that was really because I was just trying to keep up, <laughs> keep the energy level up, <laughs> and because I kind of have this taste aversion to vegetables, but that's just my own thing. So, um, so anyway, I guess that's, those, are, those are pretty much the comments I can give you about that. I hope that's somewhat informative.
The lightning, the thunder, it is time for flash answers. Sammy Hutsonen. I read a comment that Scientologists sometimes offer free e-meter readings around different mental health facilities. This sounds horrifying and like an outright abuse of people in very difficult situations. Is there any truth to this? If there's any truth to that, it's not because Scientologists are trying to appeal to mental health um, inmates or people who are in these institutions or who are committed. Those are the last people Scientology is interested in helping or doing anything with. There are specific policies in the church about not do, getting those, you know, getting people with mental health or mental illnesses uh, into um, Scientology, into their churches. So that's that would not be the purpose of any, um, you know, e-meter, free e-meter demonstrations or stress tests or anything like that. Uh, they do those on the street all the time in an effort to sell books. And that's what those stress tests are all designed to do, not appeal to people who are institutionalized to come into Scientology. That would never, that would never be a thing. Ascari Navarro. What are your thoughts of Betsy DeVos being head of the Department of Education, even though she has no experience in the field of education and denies a lot of things? Well, my own personal opinion is, uh, like most Trump appointees, Betsy DeVos has zero uh, capability, knowledge, experience in that area and should never have been put onto that job of, of uh, Secretary of Education. And as I understand it, she's actually might now be looking at uh, re leaving that job because she's not really getting much of anything done. Uh, yeah, I've, I think I've made my position about Trump and Trump appointees pretty clear over the last uh, two years, and, and my views on that have not changed in any way. Benjamin Johnson. Is Scientology morbid enough to use a memorial service as a fundraiser? I recently saw the invitation to a memorial service at the Seattle Ideal Morgue. The deceased had a history-making impact on the org and had done groundbreaking research on LRH. Double plus good. Are they going to pass around the proverbial collection plate after a few Sherman Speak testimonials? Thanks and keep up the good work. No, they won't be passing around any collection plates, but the idea that somebody could be regged or, you know, kind of brought over to a room and sat down and worked over or that they could be talked to about donating to the church or one of its causes at a memorial service. Absolutely. That could happen any day of the week in a Scientology church. Keep in mind, whenever you're wondering anything about Scientology and its relative goodness or badness, that Scientology is a money-making scam. First and foremost, that is what it is. So if you're ever in doubt about whether Scientology is going to go after somebody's money or not, they are always going to go after somebody's money. That's really the only reason it exists. Okay, everybody, so that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to my chatter and inanity here. Uh, like I said at the beginning, if you are entertained, informed, and uh, educated by my channel, considering, consider joining up on my Patreon uh, because that is what allows me to keep doing the work that I'm doing for you guys. Thanks very much. I'll see you guys next time. Bye-bye.